Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics. I'm Tim Jones, and I'm joined today by Hans Gersbach, author of Redesigning Democracy, More Ideas for Better Rules, published by Springer. Now, this is not a new book as such. It was published in 2017, and as the subtitle suggests, it was a development of ideas already floated in the author's 2005 book, Designing Democracy. But just because a new edition hasn't been published in four years doesn't mean the author hasn't been churning out his own updates. Together with collaborators, he has published papers on, among other things, the optimal length of political terms, using re-election thresholds to curb political polarisation, pendular voting and vote delegation, semi-flexible majority rules for public good provision, incentive pay for policymakers, and politsplaining. For three decades, Professor Gersbach has been using economic analysis and tools to explain and improve political behaviour. When he started out, we were meant to be at the end of history. Liberal democracy had won. Today, things look rather different, and his mission to optimise democracy and reduce the disenchantment that feeds extremism has never been more salient. Hans Gersbach holds the Chair of Macroeconomics, Innovation and Policy at ETH Zurich, and previously taught at Heidelberg and Basel. Hans, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, Before we explore some of the ideas in your book and the follow-up papers I mentioned, can we go right back to the beginning, to the late 80s, the early 90s, and how you got into this unusual area of economics? Yes. Actually, my interest started uh, when I was a teenager, and... um, looked at how direct democracy was working in our village here in Switzerland. And I saw strengths, but also fragilities um, of such um, democratic governance. Overall, it went well. And I was quite satisfied, actually, with how democracy was working. But then in the 80s and 90s, I was confronted with the Public Choice School, founded by Buchanan and Tollock, and saw how... um, Economic analysis, political economic analysis identified many, many shortcomings of democracies and also noticed that, yeah, while liberal democracies are somehow the best system of self-governance for societies, they rarely invoke great enthusiasm among, uh, even among scientists and among uh, citizens. So I started to think about, can we improve um, democracy? And then quite a lot of ideas um, came up and over time more and more ideas came up and that convinced me that we we can improve democracy and there are many, many ideas out there that we simply need to find, to develop and obviously to assess whether or not obviously there really are um, improvements for democracy. Mm. And for, the, for listeners who don't know uh, the economic intellectual history could could you could you take us through what public choice is and who Buchanan and Tullock were yeah Buchanan and Tullock actually um, started um, in the 60s to challenge um, a, a view that was prevailing that um, politicians uh, are motivated simply by improving uh, the well-being of citizens, they assumed that politicians have their own objectives um, uh, when they come into power and they may pursue policies that may not be in the interest of, of citizens um, because those policies may foster their own 
uh, well-being in particular ways or may um, foster the well-being of particular interest groups and um, also challenge some of decisions, the decision-making procedure that may not go, um, go well. Um, in parallel, there was already, of course, um, a lot of skepticism in the so-called social choice uh, literature about whether or not um, um, collective decision-making will always produce good results. So that was already there, but then Buchanan and Tollock took it actually, um, uh, this critical view to a much more um, um, different level by exactly challenging uh, the, the motivations of politicians and the outcomes that may come about this. And then a whole school emerged actually uh, and um, identified a lot of deficiencies that we see um, in democracies. Um, um, and that, that was actually um, the starting point actually of my endeavor. Mm. Is it still a much more dominant school in the US um, than Europe or or has it become, I I sometimes think it's become quite tangled up with what used to be known as auto-liberalism in in Europe and the the two have created this sort of synthesis. Is it bigger in the US or or over here? I think that the assumption that also politicians have their own objectives is very uh, widely now... um, 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 acknowledged and uh, accepted um, in the pro- in the in the much wider profession, uh, but people don't call themselves anymore public choice uh, scholars. They're doing political economy. They analyze economic political systems. So that. Um, um, Assumption basically that is widely accepted, but the school as such uh, has certainly um, uh, has not uh, um, this dominance it had once actually as an old mm. school uh, because simply um, people now doing political econ- economic analysis uh, but don't call themselves as a part of a school anymore. Mm. Well, it, what really struck me was uh, reading the book and your papers. I mean, we're talking about concepts like optimizing democracy or making it more efficient and so on. But but having read it, I, I, I thought of one central principle, and I'd like to he- hear your thoughts on this. We don't like politicians to lie outright, but we don't expect them to be entirely honest, especially during campaigns when they set out their prospectus. Uh, and yet we wouldn't accept this in any other area of life. So you're trying to build in rewards and consequences that converge politics with the rest of life. Is, is that a, do you think that's an accurate way of seeing your your research project? I think this is one part of, of the research project is to introduce political contracts and to turn democracy into so-called contractual democracy mm. um, in which politicians can choose uh, when they m- want to make promises to citizens. They can still um, make some awake promises, promises that may see at the end not turn out to be um, or will not be fulfilled at the end. But they can also select a subset of promises um, against which they uh, are charged harder because there are consequences if they don't fulfill those promises. Of course, those promises need to qualify in a certain way, actually, to, to, to be connected to rewards or to punishment, because they need to be certified and they need to be precise. Um, but so I would like to 
to allow politicians actually to make to, um, exactly to make um, uh, promises that against um, or for which they are much harder charged, and um, they, uh, those promises are linked to rewards or punishments, and others um, that understand the promises um, <laughs> sometimes exactly they are not honest about them, or that they are very vague, and and they always are true <laughs> or not uh, or uh, cannot be judged to be untrue. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, but politicians have the choice to select those two sets, subsets. Exactly. But we should open well, um, um, a set of rules, actually, to allow politicians to make also this uh, this other subset, namely the um, uh, thirty-five promises in which uh, rewards and punishments are attached. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get down to some of the proposals in in some detail, and and let's start with your idea of a coalition preclusion contract. Can you talk us through this this idea, precisely how it would work and what they are meant to achieve? Exactly. So uh, we had in uh, many instances um, politicians um, who uh, promised not to engage in a, a, a in a coalition with a particular other party typically extreme parties at least yeah. parties that are view, were viewed as extremes um, we had such cases in germany for instance well uh, famous cases and then politicians um, uh, exactly said we will never enter into a coalition with that party but after the election was over and um, a coalition with that party was nevertheless now all of a sudden attractive to come into power, um, um, then politicians um, have broken that promise. And the coalition preclusion contract simply means uh, if a politician wants to be serious about not entering into a coalition or a party at the end um, with, with, uh, politician, with politicians um, uh, running for office, uh, want to be serious and want to be at the end um, um, commit not to enter into a coalition with another party, they can make such a promise that is then certified. And if they then nevertheless uh, would enter into a coalition, they would get severely punished. Either they would lose all public funding for their party. And if the punishment is sufficiently severe, then they would not renege on their promise. So that opens um, uh, for citizens, uh, the possibility that indeed such promises are are um, um, have bite and will not be, and they will uh, uh, and parties will not renege on them after it's and that will help citizens to make much more informed uh, election choices when it comes then exactly to elections. Yeah, and you mentioned that they should be certified uh, promises. Um, who who do those certificate? Uh, who who ensures that certification? Where is it? Where where is that lodged? Exactly. So that's an important, obviously, question uh, because obviously there has to be a, f- a formal process, a legal process at the end, in which parties um, certify um, um, uh, their promises. They want to certify. They are obviously free which ones they want to certify. Uh, that's a choice of politicians and parties at the end. Um, so a certification body. Um, it should be an independent body. It could be, um, um, obviously, and it should be in, in the judicial branch uh, and should be an independent body that, that certifies um, those um, promises and also then at the end uh, judges well, uh, whether it has been violated or not. 
Mm. In some countries, would it be appropriate for, I think of countries like um, Ireland or Italy, where you have these uh, heads of state that have these government formation uh, responsibilities, would, would it make sense for the president in that case to be the certification body? Or the office of the president. Exactly, that is an idea. Um, I also talked with about this idea with uh, legal scholars, actually, and uh, there are pros and cons about this solution. But that would be the easiest solution, in some sense, mm. that you don't need a new institution uh, to introduce mm. for certification. Exactly, but they obviously uh, uh, would need to have a body actually judging that, etc. But ultimately, that would be um, um, an e- the easiest way actually uh, to introduce this within the existing. Um, branches we have. Now, I can imagine um, people's problem with this model, which is that it it potentially leads to Syriza or Five Star or even Trump uh, in that if you have a system that encourages the formation of grand coalitions uh, when you have multi-party systems, those parties that would otherwise be seen as opposition are seen as part of the establishment and you lose that sort of political safety valve and, and in some ways encourage extremism. How would you how would you argue against that? Exactly. So one important um, component is that one party should only be allowed to exclude one other party. Mm. Otherwise, um, um, first, otherwise it could get, you see, at the end, the difficulties in forming governments at the end. Uh, so that is one problem. And the second problem, um, indeed, it can it can actually foster grand coalitions, um, but typically, what our research shows and the analysis shows, parties will only exclude extreme parties of extreme parties uh, in the political spectrum in grand, in those uh, coalition preclusion contracts, and. Then at the end, we have a choice between a grand coalition and a coalition with an extreme party. And typically, a grand coalition then dominates nevertheless, even if it's a grand coalition, the, 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 the outcome of, a, of having a party uh, or a coalition of a party with another extreme party. So that's still better at the end for citizens as, uh, as a whole, yeah. on average for citizens, having that co- um, that. Um, um, Exactly outcome, but in many cases, what a, a coalition preclusion contracts help actually is that a single party actually gets more votes and can form actually a government with another small party or even on its own. So it can mm. also prevent in many many cases grand coalitions simply because voters coordinate their votes on on uh, on a particular party much more than they do it without this coalition preclusion contract because then citizens do not know if we, whom this, this party will f- make a coalition and, be, and are careful. And otherwise, mm-hmm. they are sure there will be no coalition of an extreme party. And then they will coordinate much more on on convention, uh, votes on conventional parties and may help one of them um, having a, a majority or a majority of another small party. I guess the other uh, thing it might do over time would be to force um, parts of the extreme parties uh, uh, into one of the established parties, so you'd end up with these mega parties like the like uh, like exist in, in in France or the UK or United States that are made up of 
anything from the centre to the extreme. Do you think that would be a possible outcome also? Absolutely. So a possible outcome is also that um, um, extreme parties actually um, become smaller and some mm. of the ideas actually are taken up and therefore also some citizens are taken up by conventional parties. Typically, such a process is healthy for the democracy of course, only as long as obviously and, uh, ideas are taken up that are not connected to violence or other, mm. you see, uh, very unpleasant things. Um, um, because then you, you, see, you see they are taken up, they are weakened, they are putting into a, a compromise solutions. And that is then part of somehow um, consensus formation and, and um, also um, increasing the social fabric actually in a democracy and makes the democracy more stable and more inclusive. And mm. that's actually a, a, another advantage of such, of such um, devices. Well, the, these preclusion contracts are quite specific to proportional representation systems where coalitions are necessary to form governments. Yes. You've also addressed the opposite problem in the UK and the US, which is safe seats, you know, yes. long incumbencies. Yeah. So, and one of your ideas is really interesting idea of a history bound re-election. Can you, can you explain this idea? Exactly. So it's a very simple idea in principle. They're saying, look, if you are running now for a seat, and for instance, in the US House of Representatives, um, and um, if you, for instance, if you start running for the first, if you are nominated by your party and you are um, winning this seat, say, by 60%, because it's a very safe seat for your party, many, many seats are safe. You see, the last majority of seats in the US are safe. Hmm. Uh, then the next time you are running again for re-election, you must replicate the score you had previously, actually. So that would mean here in the extreme case, 60%, but in a weaker form, it would be a little bit less, say, for instance, 55%. So you need to then replicate the higher score that is on the higher score is based on your previous election results. Uh, and that means that um, you are not automatically always winning. You see the next elections again, that this, the, um, the competition is much more competitive. And um, that also has then positive effects typically on, on how parties select politicians in such districts because they are uh, select a little bit more moderate um, mm. uh, candidates because they are, can always win, you see, a larger share of the votes. And therefore, um, history-bound re-elections um, uh, exactly have or are prom promised to have uh, quite a lot of advantages. Uh, exactly one I already said, it's just uh, more... Um, uh, moderate people are elected, so there's less polarization then in parliament, and therefore mm. um, consensus compromises are um, easier actually to achieve. Um, moreover, the motivation actually for the politicians to behave in a good way are higher because it's always a little bit um, on the, the threat of deselection. And typically, mm. the threat of deselection is one of you see the, the threat and accountability device we have in a democracy to um, uh, to foster good behavior of politicians. So that is then the second advantage. And the third advantage, there's simply more turnover over time, and therefore also new people can come in. Uh, and we don't see then you see that people are in office for 30 years or something like that, simply mm. because the seat the seat is safe. 
Yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, you you also look into that uh, uh, regarding the perils of incumbency. You 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 did a paper with Matthew Jackson and uh, Oriel Tejada on optimal term length. Um, what what did you conclude from that? Exactly. So we we um, developed a framework actually to uh, to analyze and um, identify what are optimal term lengths actually for um, for a political uh, environment, depending on the on the, the characteristics of the democracy exactly. And uh, there we found out that. Um, the term length depends on on a particular set of characteristics, and um, depending on what they are looking for now in the U.S., for instance, House of Representatives, the Senate, or the Supreme Court, you come to different conclusions about what is the optimal term length exactly. And mm-hmm. we also um, um, have seen, for instance, as an example, if polarization increases um, in in society. Um, as we have seen, for instance, in the U.S., um, in particular political polarization, then um, it might be actually good not to have too short term. uh, So the term length should not be too short. Therefore, for instance, the term length in in the... in in the House of Representatives uh, with two years appears to be uh, quite short or one could even go a little bit further and say it's actually probably too short simply because um, when you have such short um, terms and um, uh, there's large political polarization then um, when you have a change in the, in the House of Representatives, you have large policy swings, you have large adjustment costs that are occurring. And um, that is, in some sense, uh, inefficient um, if those see large uh, uh, change on the adjustment costs of policies occur too frequently. Moreover, also, people need to obviously to engage in campaigns. You see, uh, a lot of time, you see, they are yes. actually in parliament. And therefore, obviously, that is also um, something that has to be um, um, fostered in, in addition to other costs of organizing elections, et cetera, so additional cost mm. elements as well. Yeah, two two year term is a permanent campaign, effectively. I mean, do, yeah. do you conclude that? Uh, do you conclude what is a optimal average term? Uh, yeah. Should it be four, four, so, four or five years, for example? Exactly. So I, I should be careful. I think um, uh, we have done a theoretical analysis on the determinants of terms. And mm. our analysis shows that if there's more polarization, like in the US over the last decades, you should increase the term length. So that suggests that the term length in the House of Representatives is probably uh, might be too short. But you have not done an empirical analysis proving this. I think we all want mm. to be very careful here. Uh, mm. It's a it's comes out of our theoretical model and the determinants we are looking at the comparative statics we are doing, but we have not a proof, an empirical one, you see that it is too short. I want to be very, very careful mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have not done, uh, cannot say, yeah, four years is the correct one and, and three years is the wrong one. I think that would that be 
cannot do and do not want to do. But we can say if, if certain developments happening, should we increase the term? Uh, should it be lower? Uh, should it be higher in a, in a court uh, um, um, than in, a, in the Senate? And the Senate should be higher. The term length in the Senate should be higher than in the House. Is this, can this be rationalized? All those things we can do exactly, but not precise term lengths. We cannot mm. um, and, or be careful, actually, not to um, want to say that we can calculate directly optimal term lengths. But the relationships and, and how developments impact uh, term lengths we can do. Um, I've got a, a last question on political accountability, um, and this this could be your Swissness coming through here. But uh, you you have this idea for assessment or sample voting yes. to to test public opinion before big parliamentary decisions. Now, as I understand it, um, this could this could actually form part of the ultimate decision. C- can you explain this idea? Exactly, it's also a very simple idea. Uh, if you have a direct democracy like in Switzerland, but also in California. Hmm. Uh, and you have usually a lot of initiatives to see people um, should vote on it, then you could do the following. You first sample a subset of citizens uh, eligible to to, uh, to vote. Um, um, so, for instance, Switzerland could be 100,000. Um, California maybe obviously a little bit larger, half a million or hmm. a million. Um, and then you let them – so they are randomly selected – and they get all the information, and um, and they have now they obtain also the right to vote on a particular initiative. Um, and uh, once they have voted on this initiative, the results is published. And then we could allow that the guys uh, or, or uh, the people who have uh, um, um, exactly created this initiative actually to withdraw the initiative if they see, well, the result is overwhelmingly against to see this initiative. Mm. There's no sense to go to a full campaign. Or they can go or say, no, we want to have a, um, a full vote. And then in a second round, um, exactly the rest of the citizens would vote because, of course, we have one person, one vote. So everybody um, has the right to vote. Uh, and mm. if something is implemented, um, um, a change is implemented, everybody has the right to uh, need, needs to have the right to vote, of course, because I'm a personal vote. And then the rest is voting. But even there, we could see then then that um, participation in the second round of voting is very low because the result, if the result is already clear, then people will mm. not will not bother a lot and simply say, well, the result is already clear. And then the second vote would simply confirm the first vote. If it's tighter, of course, than not, then we have a full campaign obviously also in the second round. So at the end, it would allow, you see, that um, we can have more initiatives, more proposals people vote on, but we don't need actually always to go immediately to the full-blown um, vote of, of all citizens, exactly. So this is really to save the time and cost of a, of a of a general referendum is that right exactly in addition there are now new ideas actually uh, where in the pendular voting case where we say well suppose um, an initiative group brings up a proposal the first round gives a particular result that is overwhelmingly against uh, it then we could allow the initiative group actually to adjust their proposal and to make a better one actually and then having obviously then then uh, having um, later on a full vote on on everybody, so it could also help to improve proposals uh, mm. uh, by initiative groups before you see the full all citizens have to vote on it exactly. 
Is is this something that could be applied also to parliamentary decisions? A very difficult parliamentary reform where you would be able to test it against public opinion, or is this? Do you, do you think this would only be something specific to referendums? No, no. I think it has much wider applications. The one you just mentioned exactly would be would be a good one exactly also to do it. You can do it in very large committees, and um, you can do it also. And I think that will, could also be a major application on blockchains you see blockchains today they need a governance system and uh, they have a huge amount maybe of uh, participants maybe not that interested in voting uh, um, or, or to participate there also you could randomly select a, say, a, a subset of participants and then let them vote so they're exactly they're, we think that assessment voting have a lot of applications um, exactly um, yeah. in various areas in democracy but also in other somehow virtual so, virtual societies like blockchains mm. well uh, moving away from accountability and back to mechanisms designed to protect the system and institution from politicians your idea of a catenarian fiscal discipline is really interesting and heterodox. Again, can you talk us through this idea, how it would work? Yeah, obviously, I would also like to say, you see, that I have, I think, created or came up with a lot of ideas and mm. I'm analyzing them, look into the pros and cons. But it does not mean that if I have an idea, see, I immediately say this has to be implemented. You see, the, no, no. Um, um, so many, many ideas I think I have produced um, are exactly analyzed, etc. Some I will propose at the end to be implemented. Um, a variant of history bound re-election, for instance, uh, uh, mm. has, would certainly be a good thing to do to experiment with that. But uh, see, there has a, a lot of analysis have to go into you see before and. And, and examining you know, robustness, feedback effects, unintended consequences have to go into uh, a proposal until we can make a judgment and say we should implement it. The only as mm. a, a cautious statement on 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 this, the ideas. But that is uh, the catenarian discipline or fiscal discipline would be another very interesting uh, rule to say. Um, because we are exactly many countries have difficulties exactly in getting, in sustaining fiscal discipline. Um, mm. And uh, one idea would be to say, so if uh, government is physically disciplined, they can impose at least in the first, maybe first half of the term of the next government, or if it's another government, uh, they can um, impose discipline, um, fiscal discipline. That means the budget deficit cannot go above a certain level, for instance, as a percentage of GDP. Um, they can impose certain disciplines in the first half of the term of the next government. So the next government is not free, actually, on fiscal discipline in this first uh, half of the term. And in the second uh, half of the term of the next government can then, you see, choose whatever they want in terms of uh, um, um, fiscal um, uh, fiscal situation, so on budget deficit and debt levels. But then if they are again disciplined, they have the right to impose the discipline on the next government as well. Uh, mm -hmm. If they are not disciplined themselves, then they lose that right. And that creates incentives also for the next government maybe to, to remain disciplined because uh, then they can impose that also on the next government, on the, again, mm -hmm. on the first mm -hmm. half of their term. Uh, and that creates a chain um of a chain between governments and ideally then that fiscal discipline um 
induces physical discipline along the chain and every mm. government then all all of a sudden says it's in its interest actually to remain disciplined because they can impose it on the next generation because typically the problem is if one government is disciplined and the next one is not then see the, all the benefits from physical discipline of the previous government get get somehow lost because see, it has no no long-term mm. benefits and therefore a government can ensure that the long-term benefits of fiscal discipline will be um will be sustained through this chain um mm. of um, um uh, rights of of imposing disciplines on the next government well th- th- this yeah this this idea made me think more widely about the idea of um the sharing of pain between parties and and um and a quote from the historian Neil Ferguson, who who said a few years ago, he said, uh, "Public debt allows the generation, the current generation of voters, to live at the expense of those yet to be uh, too young to vote or, or is yet unborn." And could you could you imagine a, a rule or institutional design to address this? For example, a rule that each parliamentary term is bound to pass one painful reform, you know, that's spread across the parties to address a long-term problem or some kind of structure or institution to represent people who cannot vote yet or generations that don't exist yet. Absolutely. So I have uh, actually earlier papers, actually um, 15 years ago, actually papers Mm -hmm. um, that are now actually are revived and actually will be added actually to this whole set of ideas in Mm -hmm. which we have institutions that, um, for instance, um, that allow uh, exactly such type of problems to be solved. A simple, the simplest idea, for instance, would be: um, suppose you have a, a very painful reform that mainly um, has to be um, uh, borne um, by the current generation, and they are against that. Exactly. Um, then you could still have a vote on that, but you then distinguish the votes in terms of, for instance, colors if it's paper whether um, you get the vote from the people, you see the older generation or the younger generation. And if you get the approval of the younger generation, actually who are in favor of this reform because um, they will benefit them in the, in, in the long term, then, for instance, a politician gets a reward. So that's a simple yeah. idea, actually. He may still lose, but he still gets a reward, and therefore he may be willing to do much more actually in this direction. Actually, even if he has at the moment uh, a majority in the current generations against it, more um, dramatic, obviously, and more provocative, uh, exactly, are uh, proposals that go in the direction to limit actually exactly um, um, painful reforms, actually, to, to, uh, in terms of the numbers, as you have alluded to that, or having cadener- or cadenarian discipline um, exactly in other ways and, mm. and benefiting, um, for instance, po- politicians in the long term um, for instance, his pension, you see, could be could be um, could be yeah. t- um, um, connected actually to painful reform he has done earlier. So exactly, so long term long term incentives actually for politicians is one of the very very important um, exactly areas uh, to work on. You, you mentioned the politician would be rewarded. Uh, what kind of rewards are we talking about here? 
Well, the reward, of course, it, uh, I mean, they're typically the monetary rewards, but they're mm. also rewards um, 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 in other ways, actually, because politicians like to, obviously, money is important, but they like to be a career status, etc. cetera. Mm. So, um, for instance, one could, uh, one of the proposals is to, uh, to form um, a body of um, uh, um, elder statesmen, an official body, not only as the informal, an official body of elder statesmen, actually, to which um, politicians can qualify exactly to su- such type of, of proposals if they get, for instance, approval of uh, of certain group or to do painful reforms. And then mm. they are, for instance, uh, a group that... Um, will judge reforms in the future. They have no decision power anymore, but that they are the official bodies actually in, the, in society to judge, you see, whether reforms have long-term good consequences or not. And that will influence then uh, public public certainly opinion, hopefully. Uh, um, and there will be somehow always a, a judgment added actually by such a body and politicians can qualify for such bodies through, through good mm-hmm. actions, good policies, long-term policies. So there are a lot of ideas how to do these rewards, money or not money, and um, one has to think about what are the best ones exactly. Yeah. Well, as we've alluded to here, you've done a lot of thinking and a lot of proposing since the since the book came out. Are you going to consolidate this into, into another book soon? Well, um, surprisingly, I thought actually um, with the second book, I have reached a certain level. But in recent times, there are so many new, <laughs> so many new ideas came up. Mm. Assessment voting, co-vo- and now co-voting, and new uh, um, pendular voting. There are so many new ideas there. So we certainly will now uh, do a lot of research in the next years to come. And, or we are already doing a lot of research uh, and bringing those proposals see, to a, to a hard, to um, analytical analysis. And then um, exactly over time, I'm, if everything goes well, uh, we will co- I will currently come up with a third book, actually, because mm. many, many new ideas have sprung uh, in recent times. And um, I'm, I'm actually a little bit myself, uh, not overwhelmed, but I see many my ideas, they have to be they have to be analyzed and there are new things uh, that should be done exactly. So I assume so there will be a third book. So that, that we'll have re- redesigning democracy next. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, um, to finish, as usual, because this is a podcast for book lovers, I've asked my guest to recommend two books, one from his field and one personal choice. Um, what have you chosen? Yeah, obviously I have a lot of books I could recommend. One is um, by Felsenthal and Normie in 2019. They have written a book about voting procedures on the restricted domain and examination of the invulnerability of 20 voting procedures to five main paradoxes. So they summarize everything what we know somehow on uh, on uh, voting on the election procedures, which go well, which which don't go well, what are the problems and what might be good ones from the existing ones. So that is from my own field, a very nicely um, um, done book. And the other one, um, I still would recommend to read again, in some sense, maybe A Beautiful Mind, uh, a biography of John Forbes Nash, by Sylvia Nasser, um, that's still one of my favorite books, exactly. And we can always read it again. Okay. Well, uh, today I've been talking to Hans Gersbach, author of Redesigning Democracy, published by Springer. Thanks uh, again for coming on, Hans. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.